biggest lesson that I've learned. So I've seen tens of thousands of children. And you know what? I've never seen a bad kid ever. I've seen kids that need some help. And what we're doing with the science, the science is really interesting. Not just a case of understanding, but okay, now I understand what's going on. What can I do about it? And that's the key. Welcome to the School Behaviour Secrets Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Corrigan. My co-host is Emma Shackleton, and we're obsessed with helping teachers, school leaders, parents, and of course, students when classroom behaviour gets in the way of success. We're going to share the tried and tested secrets to classroom management, behavioural special needs, whole school strategy, and more, all with the aim of helping your students reach their true potential. Plus, we'll be letting you eavesdrop on our conversations with thought leaders from a around the world so you'll get to hear the latest evidence-based strategies before anyone else this is the school behavior secrets podcast welcome to episode two of the school behavior secrets podcast and today we have an interview with dr stuart shanker who's going to talk to us about what drives challenging student behavior and the difference between self-regulation and self-control as ever i'm here with my co-host emma shackleton hi emma hi there I also want to remind you that you've still got time to enter our prize competition where you could win over £100 worth of behaviour-related resources. We'll tell you how you can enter a little later in the show. So Emma, I'd like to start with a question. When was the last time you felt stressed and why? I think the biggest stresses for me are usually time related. So if I feel like I'm running out of time on something, that makes me feel stressed. Don't get me wrong, I do benefit from a bit of deadline pressure to spur me into action. But if I feel like everything's not going to get done, I tend to go into overdrive and get a bit manic and feel overwhelmed. Our guest today, Stuart Shanker, is an expert in psychology, and he would say that when we experience pressure, it affects the stress chemicals in our body, which go on to affect our behavior, so we might become more snappy. So let's get straight to that interview now and find out how stress could be impacting on the behavior of the pupils in your classroom. I'd like to introduce you to our guest today. Stuart Shanker has served as an advisor on child development to government organizations across the world including Canada and the United States. He's a research professor of philosophy and psychology, is the CEO of the Merit Centre and the scientific director of Self-Reg Global Incorporated. And in particular, his work has focused on the impact of excessive stress on child development and behaviour. And before we get started, I'd also like to say that his work has had a huge impact on me personally and professionally. It's changed the way I approach supporting kids with behaviour in the classroom, And that's not just because his work is based on neuroscience and biology, but he actually gives you practical advice that builds on the science. He's joining the dots. I'm sure there's going to be plenty of practical takeaways from this show for our listeners. Stuart, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here. Thank you very much, Simon. In your work, you say self-regulation starts when we reframe a child's behavior, moving from seeing that behavior as difficult or as misbehavior to viewing it as a stress response. Can you tell us what do you mean by this and explain how stress drives children's behavior? You know, it's really the perfect way to start today. I am very much a product of UK education. When I was there, I was in the midst of a revolution that was occurring in the two fields you mentioned, in neuroscience and biology. We developed technologies that enabled us to see deep inside a kid's brain. 
When I started at Oxford, we could only see what was going on on the outside and the circumference. But now we could see these processes deep inside what's called the limbic system. And it's transformed everything that we believed up until that point because we began to see how these deep internal neural processes were really driving kids' behavior. When we talk about this reframing, seeing the difference between misbehavior and stress behavior. What we're talking about is the difference between the behaviors that are really governed by the outer parts of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, and the behaviors that are coming from deep inside the brain, the limbic system. So could you just explain to our listeners for one moment the difference between the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system so they have an understanding of what those different parts do? I use a model that was developed by an American neuroscientist called Paul McLean, and it's called the triune model. And what he argued was that we really have um, three brains in one. We have an ancient brain, a reptilian brain. This is the brain, it's about 300 million years old, and it's the brain that governs things like fight or flight, aggression, what we're seeing happening in the U.S. today. Superimposed on that is a newer brain, which he called the paleomammalian. This is about 200 million years old, and this was a brain for social creatures, for, for mammals. And so it begins to do all kinds of things like nurturing a baby. And then, let's say three million years ago, we start to get modern human brain, and it's this third brain that we really have looked at for the last couple of hundred years, it's the part of the brain, the neocortex, which subserves things like thinking and problem solving and understanding what other people are feeling, all of our sort of higher human traits. But the big discovery that we've made over the last 30 years is that the stuff that's going on in that middle brain, that limbic system, the part of the brain underneath the neocortex, It's as important, if not more important, than the things that are going on in the thinking part of the brain. And in fact, what we find with the kinds of kids, they really have heightened stress load, generally because biological reasons. And unfortunately, because we didn't understand this, because we didn't understand the difference between a stress behavior, something coming from the limbic system and an intentional behavior, we actually made things worse. You know, we punished the child or shamed the child. In the work that we've done in Canada, what we find is that once you make this distinction, once you recognize the stress behavior for what it is and deal with it accordingly, you get a totally different kid. That child's whole trajectory, their developmental trajectory is transformed as a result of us seeing their behavior through a different lens. So when you say stress, I mean, stress has got kind of an everyday meaning in terms of being under pressure. What do we mean in this sense? What what do we mean by stress? One of the problems that we have when we teach all this stuff is people have this sort of pop understanding of stress, you know, the stress of time or money. For neuroscientists and physiologists, stress is anything that requires the brain to burn energy in order to keep functioning. And in fact, the original example that was used to explain stress was cold weather how when it's cold outside, this triggers a response deep inside the limbic system to generate heat so that our body stays at 37 degrees, roughly. So when we look at stress, you you know, the essence of life is to deal with stress. We look at stress across five different domains. And you said something right in your intro that I thought was the key. What we're interested in in self-reg is stress overload, excessive stress. A child has to deal with stress. They have to deal with the stress of school or the stress of getting along with other kids. Stress wakes us up. Stress is what motivates us. Problems that we have are when the child has 
too much stress. That requires a very different kind of response if our goal is for them to, you know, thrive. By no means are we trying to eliminate stress from a child's life. What we're trying to do is figure out when we're seeing signs of stress overload and what do we do about it. How do our brains, how do our bodies normally regulate the stress that's coming towards it? What's the kind of normal process? One of the key elements of this whole theory, so in my last book, uh, which is called Reframed, talks about the two big discoveries, the foundation of self-right theory. One is the one I just mentioned, this triune brain. But the other one, which is as important, is called the interbrain. So let me give you one second explanation of what the interbrain is. For various evolutionary reasons, our species give birth to our babies prematurely. All babies, all human babies are born premature. We're not sure how much, but maybe four to six months. But there are various reasons why this happened. The newborn is completely helpless. In fact, we even talk about the newborn as a fetus outside the womb. But if it's still very much like a fetus, then it raises an interesting question. What takes the place of the umbilical cord? And the answer is, the theory is, the interbrain. And this was actually developed by a British psychologist called Digby Tantum. And the idea here is the interbrain is a sort of wireless connection between a higher order brain and a lower order brain. And the reason it's so important is because here we've got this little fetus outside the womb assaulted by all kinds of stresses that it didn't experience inside. So, you know, noise and light and temperature, and now it has to breathe for itself and all these things going on. And this fetus-like newborn lacks the knowledge and experience necessary to deal well with all these stresses. And so the role of the interbrain is really to serve as that higher order self-regulating mechanism. She or he reads the signs of when the baby is becoming overstressed and adjusts accordingly. So we're talking here about the high order brain being the parent, usually the mother? So the answer is yes, usually, but not necessarily. Now, here's the problem. Certain babies are born with a heightened stress response. And this is biological. Maybe they're more sensitive. Let's just take one example. So they're more sensitive to sound. Just having a caregiver that speaks a little too quickly or a little too loudly causes the baby aversive response. And the baby shuts down to protect themselves from the stress. I was reading through a lot of your literature on your website, and the kids that you're working with are by and large kids who, for biological reasons, have this kind of heightened stress response, a little bit more sensitive to different kinds of stresses, or maybe their internal system, their proprioception, it's called, is a little bit underdeveloped. Now we tie that in with the interbrain. Suppose now I'm looking at a child, two or three years old, who gets overstressed. And when they're overstressed, they have all kinds of impulses, like let's say a tantrum. If I respond as a self-reg parent to or self-reg educator to this behavior. So I see the difference. I see that this is a stress behavior. Then I begin to ask myself, why is this child overstressed now? What's causing this to happen? And I'm going to reduce those stresses. And at a very young age, we can begin to teach the child how to do this for themselves. But let's say I'm a self-controllist 
parent. Let's say that I get angry when the child has this heightened impulse and I respond by punishing or yelling. Now the problem, what this does is the child may stop the behavior, but their internal system, it's called their sympathetic arousal, remains very high. We haven't actually addressed the source of the problem. In fact, we've made it worse because that child is going to become even more sensitive to the stresses that created the problem in the first place. Could you talk a little bit about how the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems try and upregulate and downregulate you so you can see the child trying to cope with this increase in stress? We've got this mechanism which operates entirely on its own. We can't control it. It's called the autonomic nervous system. And so autonomic here meaning automatic. And it's really designed, it has two branches. And so one of the branches is called the sympathetic nervous system, and the other branch is called the parasympathetic nervous system. The role of the sympathetic nervous system is basically to provide us with energy to meet a challenge. So whenever we have, say, a stress, what happens is our heart rate goes up, blood pressure goes up a little bit, our breathing increases. All these reactions are the result of the sympathetic nervous system. And it's really sending messages into the bloodstream. Basically, they are tapping into our glucose so that we can meet the stress. This is not a bad thing. This is life. The problem that you identified is stress overload. When that sympathetic nervous system is really being triggered too much, So we have that second branch that you mentioned, the parasympathetic, and we refer to that as the source of restoration. The problem with the sympathetic nervous system is that if it's chronic, if it's constantly burning energy, this causes all kinds of wear and tear, cells and organs. And so the role of the parasympathetic nervous system is to restore our energy, to reduce inflammation. All these are very important. So you've got these two branches working together. When a child is thriving, those two systems are really balancing off. The parasympathetic restores all of the energy expenditure of the previous day. Technical term is homeostasis. And we know when a kid's in homeostasis because, you know, they wake up, they're happy, they're smiling, they're eager to embrace the challenges of the day, they're curious, all these signs of balance. When you get the kinds of problems that you guys, that Beacon Support is working with, when we get those behaviors, it tells us the child is out of balance. The technical term is in a state of cacostasis, meaning that the parasympathetic system can't keep up with the demands. Would it be fair to say the child gets stuck? It's because they get stuck that they begin to seek out various kinds of stimulation. And really what they're doing here is they're looking for ways to trigger adrenaline or epinephrine in order to keep going. So they're not restoring. They're actually pushing even harder on this, what's called the parasympathetic reflex. I want to tie that to where we started today, this reframing, because now when I see this kid that's having problems regulating their emotion or problems, you know, lashing out, instead of seeing this as a bad kid, what I actually see is I see a kid whose parasympathetic reflex can't keep up. And I begin to ask myself why. Instead of seeing this as a child who needs to be punished or corrected, I see this as a child who for biological or neurobiological reasons is over stressed. And I want to know how I can lower that child's stress and teach that child how to do it for himself. 
So that brings us neatly to what is the difference between self-regulation and self-control? So that's the million dollar question, right? And self-control is where we, you know, it's a very Victorian concept. And the idea here is that if you have impulses, you have to inhibit those impulses. So if you want to, you know, if, if you want to hit another kid, you have to be punished so that you learn that hitting is not allowed. But what we've learned is that when we try to teach a child to inhibit their impulses, what happens is that they may, they may stop that behavior because of their fear of punishment, but their sympathetic arousal remains incredibly high, even while they're sleeping. Now, this is literally what I did at Oxford. I was studying self-regulation. The idea here was self-regulation refers to how we manage stress. And the reason why that original definition is so critical is because it tells us that we can manage stress in a maladaptive way or in a growth-promoting way. And so all of the work that we do in self-reg is really designed to shift kids from maladaptive to growth-promoting. And so one of the typical behaviors that we saw with children that had autism is gaze aversion. What it was, was that the young child on the spectrum finds social interaction incredibly stressful. And it could be the proximity, it could be the energy coming off the caregiver's eyes, it can be smell, it can be noise, but whatever the stresses are, and it's usually more than one, the child responds by gaze averting, by breaking that connection. This is a way of managing stress. And of course, in the classroom, you'll often hear, look at me when I'm talking to you, and that's going to result in more stress. So maladaptive means that maybe it reduces the stress at the moment, but it creates more stress down the road. So a maladaptive response to stress is anything that actually serves to increase the child's stress later. What we're looking at then is... Let's suppose that the child deals with this heightened stress load. So we're talking now 12, 13, 14-year-old by immersing themselves in a video game. Now, the problem is not the media per se. It's not the game. When we have problems, it's because the child is using this to avoid dealing with their stress. So what we want to do is we want to shift them. We want to help them transition to a healthier way of dealing with stress. And so what we find is that those kids that are struggling, if they turn to their primary caregivers and can deal objectively, non-judgmentally with their stress, this is not only incredibly effective, incredibly growth-promoting, but it's true at all stages of life, even at the end of life. And let's tie that in with what you just said about the kid in the classroom. We get those misbehaviors, and that kid needs that interbrain connection more than ever. That interbrain connection at this moment is with that educator. I think that brings us on perfectly to the five sort of key domains. And I wonder if you could just give us a quick description of those domains and the kinds of stresses in the classroom or the kind of experiences in the classroom that would cause a child to feel stress. One of the things that we did was we had a team of scientists that began to assemble what are called stress inventories for us. What we wanted was a list of every kind of stress that you can find in the scientific literature. Some of them were very surprising. For example, it turns out that birthday parties are stresses. You know, it begins to all make sense. And you can get those stress inventories for free from our website. And so what we wanted to do was to simplify it because in the moment, dealing with a kid that you see as becoming 
becoming overstressed, you haven't got time to pull out a stress inventory. And we did what's called factor analysis. We wanted to know what are the basic groups of stresses. What we found was there are pretty much these five domains. So all of the examples that we have can be fitted in to one of the five domains. So the five domains are physical, biological, emotional, cognitive, social, and pro-social. Okay, so let's start off with physical. Let's take a typical classroom. All the kids, all the students are sitting at the same chair and desk. And you wouldn't normally think of that in terms of, you know, self-regulation. But what we found was that for kids that have poor proprioception, now proprioception is this internal sense. It's like the five senses, but it's an internal sense where your body is. But what they found was that for kids with poor proprioception, the result of forcing them to sit for a long time in, a, you know, the typical desk chair arrangement was behavioral issues. What they studied was what happens if I change the seating? What if I give them some kind of seating which is not as stressful on their proprioceptive system? And the answer was there is a dramatic drop in their behavioral problem. So that's what we're doing in our five domains. Okay, so in the emotion domain, Suppose you've got a kid that has been conditioned never to get angry and the child starts to get angry and so they're punished for it or shamed for it by their parent because in our family, we don't get angry. And what we really want to know is, you know, what were the stresses that led to this angry outburst? And what's a constructive way of dealing with it? But now suppose that instead what we've done is we shut it down. You do not behave that way. So now what happens is the child may well inhibit their anger. But inside, if you could peer inside what's going on, you'll find that their heart rate is beating like crazy. Their sympathetic arousal is off the charts. So what we've done is we've created a problem for down the road. So what we want children to do is we want them to understand why certain emotions are running away on them. So it's not a case of controlling their emotion. It's a case of understanding how the connection between stresses and the emotions that they're feeling, and then giving them tools that will help them reduce the stresses so that they can manage more effectively the stresses. Now, an interesting question is, at what age can you begin to teach this to a child? And what we found is you can begin to teach it around the age of three. Wow, that's remarkable. It's very remarkable. Okay, cognitive stress is the hardest one for people to understand. Math is a cognitive stress. It's a cognitive stress because it makes great demands on working memory. And and what we found is that kids, there's two chapters on this in Reframed in the last book. What we found was that for kids that have, let's say, they're born with a slight deficit in numerical cognition. And what happens in math class is that they can't keep up with the rest of the class. And so they're getting now the social stress. They don't want to look stupid or whatever, or being yelled at by the teacher. It's not a hard thing to, to work on once we understand what it is. So we have lots of wonderful tools now, exercises and things that can transform math into something fun, provided we recognize the child's overstressed by this and what kinds of things we can do to reduce the stress load of math. I think what you've illustrated there really clearly as well is that these domains aren't kind of self-contained. One can spill into the next and spill into the next and they have a domino effect with each other. 
That's huge. And so one of the things that we're trying to teach here is exactly what you just said. It's never just one stress. And so we could build in, in the math example, we can go to the pro-social, the child's image of themselves. It's always all five. Suppose I've got that kid now, he's uncomfortable on the chair, which can itself make math a little harder. Or really what we're looking at is all five domains. We always assume it's all five domains. The reason why we study this is so that we make sure that we reduce all five domains. In the previous book, in the book called Self-Ray, I give some great examples. At this point, I just want to take a moment to tell you about our competition where you could get your hands on over £130 worth of school behaviour goodies. We've got a stack of books by authors like Paul Dix, Tom Bennett, Stuart Shanker, Lee Cancer and Carol Dweck up for grabs, plus a three-month subscription to our exclusive Inner Circle online programme packed with hours and hours of video training about all aspects of managing behaviour in school. To win these prizes, all you have to do is leave an honest review and rating for our show on Apple Podcasts, grab a screenshot on your phone and email it to me at simon at beaconschoolsupport.co.uk. Entries are limited to one per person and no purchase is necessary. It's completely free to enter, but I must have received your email before February the 28th, 2021. Remember, we can only accept screenshots from Apple Podcasts. We'll draw the winner at random at the start of March 2021. You can find more details at beaconschoolsupport.co.uk slash podcastcompetition.php. So what have you got to lose? Rate, review us and send me your screenshot today and you'll be in with a chance of winning that fantastic prize pot. And now it's back to the podcast. So let's have a look at that self-reg process that you describe in the book. You talk about five key steps. What are those steps and how can we start using them to support kids in our own classrooms? So the five steps are reframe, that's the first, recognize, meaning recognize what the stresses are, reduce the stresses, reflect. We want the child to really understand when they're becoming overstressed, what it feels like to be calm. Then the fifth step is the one that you and I were talking at the beginning, restore, which is really kicking in a different part of the brain, and it's called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that really revitalizes the whole thing. We made a very interesting discovery. So we do these institutes across Canada. Uh, teachers, so they come from across the country, they come from around the world now, said, you know, we really want to start off the first day about our own self-right needs. So, and the discovery is, of course, that educators are under the most extraordinary stress. It's not recognized as such. In my experience, teachers are quite extraordinary. I'm absolutely convinced that they are the guardians of society's future. If those educators are overstressed, what happens is they get irritated or annoyed by the child's impulses. Now, you said something else. Uh, You let drop a, a term that is hugely important. And you said that their annoyance or irritation leaks out. And that's huge because that annoyance or irritation, it comes from the limbic system. No matter how much you try to control what you say or do, 
you cannot control these limbic messages. They come out through your voice, eye gaze, through your posture, etc. What we were finding was that how do you turn off this kind of limbic leakage? And the answer is not by conscious effort. So reframing is more than just some sort of cognitive exercise. We have our teachers stop and say, why now? Why am I seeing this behavior? Our own anxiety, our own amygdala arousal drops. This calmness that we're feeling now as we look at the kid is actually conveyed to the child. If your limbic system is calm, this has an immediately calming effect on the kid. What teachers were discovering was they felt better. If I can reduce my own stress load, not only am I more effective, but I'm coming home and I am not wasted. I guess if you're a teacher and you're reframing something from a confrontation, which is going to get you kind of keyed up emotionally, biologically to a puzzle to solve, it would sort of naturally change the way you stand and the way you think about it. And it would change the way you reflected on your experiences at the end of the day. And it's going to be positive for the kids. So we've got reframing the behavior, looking at the causes of the stress in the sort of five domains. What can we then do? You talk about reducing the stress and developing self-awareness. We've identified the problem. What's the next step to get at the solution? So these are very, if you think about it, they're very metacognitive steps. You know, we're thinking about what are the signs of stress overload? What are the stresses involved? How can I help the child internalize all this? Okay, so those are the first four steps. But the fifth step is called restore. And that's what the goal of all this is. Now, what I was, uh, what I wanted to explain, I'll do this very, very briefly. But the part of the brain that governs restoration it's called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. And for that to operate, we call it flipping the switch. And what that means is we have to turn off the parts of the brain that are overactive so that that ventromedial can automatically, unconsciously kick in. And the way we do that is you can't teach a kid, you can't force this. Instead, through steps one to four, we reduce the stress load, which has been the cause of why the kid has become hyper-aroused, why they are stuck in this anxious mode or ruminative mode. And so we, what we want to do is reduce the stress so that they naturally transition into, into this restorative brain state. And what we found is that how the kinds of restorative practices that will help this process are different for every child? Is it cooking, gardening, uh, listening to music, art? And the other lesson was, so what was restorative last week may not be this week. Sometimes we see as well um, kids who are given kind of restorative breaks and they're given things like very engaging iPad games, computer games. And I suspect that when they come off those, they're even more depleted than when they started. If you're a teacher or a parent now listening to this podcast, what's the first practical step that they can take to start implementing something like self-reg? How can they find out more about you? What's the easiest way to start this process? I honestly think the best way is to do our introductory online course. The reason I say that is this has been carefully developed so that they become part of a community of learners and it's that community experience which seems to be more important than anything I might have to say. If you go on the website, self-rig.ca, you can see all the different courses there are. But that introductory one is a really good one. You know, deep down, I, I can't help but feel that now more than ever, we have to do this for our own well-being. 
you know, if you're an educator, uh, the demands on you are enormous. What I want you to internalize if they take away anything from this is the biggest lesson that I've learned. And I've done this for, you know, my entire career now. So I've seen tens of thousands of children. And you know what? I've never seen a bad kid ever. I've seen kids that need some help. And what we're doing with the science, the science is really interesting. But again, something you said right at the outset, I think it's what drives me. It's not just a case of understanding, but okay, now I understand what's going on. What can I do about it? And that's the key. You've told us lots of useful theory here, but also lots of practical steps that we can take to start implementing this in the classroom and really reframing, as we said before, children's behavior, not as misbehavior, but as humans struggling to manage stress. And I think our readers are going to find that really useful and powerful. Thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed that interview. It's a fascinating conversation with a very smart guy, and I'm sure there was loads of information there that we can all act on. By the way, if you're interested in supporting students with strong emotions, we've got a download called the SEN Handbook that I'm sure you'll find interesting. It will help you link behaviors you see in the classroom with possible underlying causes. Now, this isn't about making a diagnosis because as teachers, we're not qualified to do that. But when we start linking behaviors with possible causes, it means we can get the right help quickly. It's a free download. There's nothing to pay for. You just go to our website, beaconschoolsupport.co.uk, click on the free resources option near the top, and you will see the SEN handbook. I'll also leave a link to that free download in the description. And don't forget to enter our competition. We've got just under £100 worth of books about behaviour in schools to give away, including Stuart Shanker's book on self-regulation, Running the Room by Tom Bennett, and When the Adults Change, Everything Changes by Paul Dix. We're also going to throw in a three-month subscription of our very own Inner Circle online programme containing over 20 videos and resources about successful behaviour management in schools, and that's worth almost £40 in itself. So if you want to win, all you've got to do is give this podcast an honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Email the screenshot to simon at beaconschoolsupport.co.uk and we'll pick one lucky winner at random one entry per person, no purchase necessary. So get your entries in before February 28th, 2021. Remember, we can only accept screenshots from Apple Podcasts. In the next episode of School Behaviour Secrets, we'll be exploring the difference between the four attachment styles and what that means for the children in your school and how you might need to adapt your approach to teach them successfully and build relationships. If you don't want to miss that, open the podcast app that you're using right now and click on the subscribe button and that will make sure your podcast app automatically downloads all future episodes so you don't miss a thing. Thanks for listening to School Behaviour Secrets. Have a great week and we look forward to talking to you again in the next episode.